Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you're one of our guests, we do invite you to stick around our services. Let's get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. If you would, grab your Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Last week, we begin to unpack these first six verses, looking at the various tests that ought to be applied by the Christian in order to test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. We looked at the first, very big one, the Jesus test. What does the Spirit say about Jesus? What is confessed by the Spirit about Jesus? If it says that Jesus has not come in the flesh, that's not from God. But if it confesses that Christ has come in the flesh, then it is from God. This week, we want to press forward into uh, this section, this paragraph, verses 1 through 6 of 1 John chapter 4. Let's go ahead and start in verse 1, and then we'll continue reading through verse 6. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, but by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God. And have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see clearly your word. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us so that you would, through your word, teach us how we might exercise spiritual, biblical discernment. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hunters use decoys. You go hunting, you're often going to utilize some kind of decoy. Uh, we uh, sometimes go hunting with my brother-in-law. He's uh, a, a hunter. We've gone out uh, with him to go dove hunting. And he has a number of decoys that he'll set up. These decoys are intended to well, look just like the real thing. And these decoys, they are arranged in such a way that they look like doves and they kind of move like doves. You can get very sophisticated ones, I'm sure, that even make noise and sound like doves. What ends up happening is that the real doves think that these false doves, these fake doves, are the real thing. And so they'll come hang around with these other doves. And it's not too long before those real doves are dead doves as a result. That they could not tell 
real from fake. For Christians, there are roving decoys in the world. Their job is to lead us astray from our faith in God, to lead us astray from our fellowship with God. And so we must evaluate, we must test the decoys, as it were, test the spirits. And indeed, we see here in this text that we can, we are able to tell truth from error. This business of pluralism is simply unbiblical that we face in our culture. There is truth and there is error, and we see this, and and we're able to tell the spirit of truth from the spirit of error as well. We need to look beyond the person. We talked last week, there's a war going on, and it's not against flesh and blood, it's against spiritual forces of darkness. And indeed, we need to look beyond the person to see and to test whether or not that spirit is authentic, whether it is the spirit of truth. Because it is the job of the spirit of error, indeed all the spirits of error, they will act like the real thing in order to deceive us. This is what John is confronting with these Christians here in 1 John. And as we come to verse 4, he introduces the spirit test, the pneumatological test. That is whether or not a person has the Holy Spirit. Notice he says, little children, that's a term of endearment. John often uses that throughout this epistle. We've seen that. He, the elder, writing to these little children whom he loves, you are from God. You, you Christians, you are from God. You have your origin in God. You have your source from God. And you have overcome them. You overcame at some point in the past, and you continue to overcome, or you stand as conquerors in the present. That's the force of that phrase there, you have overcome. Why is that? Is it because you're some big bad Christian? Some kind of spiritual Rambo? For, let me tell you why, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You hear it? It's not because of you. It is because of Him. It's because we've already seen, we emphasized this last week, might as well emphasize it again because it's the immediate context. John has just said in verse 24 of chapter 3, by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. You see, that is the He who is in you. It's the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit abides in us. God in us, that is the one who is greater. He who is in you, it doesn't come out as forcefully in English, but this is a plural you. Maybe if if you're from the South, you recognize y'all, right? Or all y'all. That's the force of the plural you here. That is, He dwells, the Spirit dwells in your midst, among you, as as the body of Christ. As the church of Christ, God's Spirit dwells in your midst. It's a body thing, in other words. Not only that, he who is in you, he's greater than he who is in the world. Now, he who is in the world, again, John talking here to these Christians, you are from God. He's going to emphasize they are from the world in verse 5. And the they here are those 
those teachers, those false prophets. Uh, and, and I prefer to identify them as proto-Gnostic teachers. That is, Gnosticism would come to full bloom in the second century, but there were some early roots of it here. These folks who claimed to be, they would even call themselves spirit people, soul people. They would come on the scene and they would claim to have the spirit, but it was not the spirit of God. And so he who is in the world, again, certainly it's the they who are from the world, but again, you get behind that and what's in back of, what's that, what's the, what's the spirit that's in back of that false prophet? Well, it is that spirit of error. They claim to have a spirit, but it's a different spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit of error. It's the spirit of Antichrist there in verse 3. Really, what's in back of it is diabolical. It's the devil. It's Satan. It's the evil one who is in the world, the one who is in the world. And look, we've been talking about, uh, we began to talk about the devil this morning during Bible class. I invite you to be a part of that study. Uh, because in order to fight the enemy, you need to know the enemy. And one of the things we emphasize, he's powerful. He is a powerful enemy. He's not all powerful. And compared to God's power, well, there really is no comparison. It is God who is in us, and that's why he is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, That is, again, really no comparison here. And so, John here talking about he who is in the world, this is connected with the end of verse 6 as well. He who is in the world, that's the spirit of truth. Again, this is the Holy Spirit who is within Christians. And as the spirit of truth, guess what he produces? Truth. And he produces and gives truth for obedience. Truth is to be obeyed. And obedience to the truth, that will produce purity in conduct. In other words, you're going to live differently than the world. The Holy Spirit helps us to be like Jesus. That's what, well, that's what John is emphasizing here. Conforming ourselves, our lives to Christ. That's the job of the Spirit. And He produces new desires and He produces new affections that are in keeping with this new heart that we've been given by God. That's what the Spirit is at work doing. And again, this stands in stark contrast with these diabolical false prophets, these teachers They do not carry with them the ethic of Christ. You see this historically play out. The early roots are certainly here, as John is writing, the end of the first century. But this thing is going to come to full bloom. And full-blown Gnosticism, what would end up happening is a lot of these guys would run around and, uh, well, they were were very greedy. You know, for a nominal fee, uh, I can get you in contact with one of these aeons. It would manifest in unbridled, sensual lust. Where these Gnostic teachers would say, you need to devote yourself, O follower, to me entirely, bodily especially. It was sick, it was twisted, it was, it was all wrapped up in sin. And, and John is saying, that kind of spirit's not from God. That is anti-Christian spirit. Because ultimately it's rooted in the lifestyle. How are they living? And if if their life is all tied up in sin, that you know that's not the spirit of truth. Because the spirit of truth is going to produce obedience and purity of conduct. 
You see, the Holy Spirit in believers, He's at work in the work of sanctification. He's at work bringing holiness to completion in the fear of Christ, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. And so, where you see sin, you're identifying the spirit of error. But where you see sanctification, ah, the spirit of truth is at work. Here's the test. How's your walk? How you living? You see, the, the believer is going to seek to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. The saints of God, with the Spirit of God living within them, are going to pursue the good way, where there is life. We're going to seek to live life in conformity with Christ. We're going to seek holiness. We're going to live an, out an ethic that reflects the Jesus ethic. And you know what that is, right? He said it a couple times during his earthly ministry. John 5, verse 14, John 8, verse 11. Do you remember this? Sin no more. And I've said it before, I'll continue to say it. We, we may not be sinless, but we are learning to sin less. Because we are putting to death sin. This is also how they overcome. You are from God and have overcome them. You overcome, again, not because you're smarter, not because you're stronger, it's not about being smarter. Again, these, these proto-Gnostics, they were the, the philosophical intellects of their day. They were mixing their philosophy with Christianity a lot of the times. It's not because you're smarter. And it's not because you're stronger. This isn't the world's strongest man competition or the world's strongest woman competition. Have they overcome? Well, it's like what is recorded for us in Revelation 12 and verse 11. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. That is, you've conquered the evil one. You've conquered that spirit of error by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even to death. And of course, that's because we recognize we've been crucified with Christ already. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ living in me. And so, again, true discipleship and the spiritual discernment. Here, this spirit within us that's greater than the one that's in the world is rooted in the Jesus ethic, the ethics of Christ, and living according to that by the spirit who is within us. There's uh, one more test here. It's verses 5 and 6. I mentioned it just briefly last week. This is the Bible test. The Bible test. You know, there are a number of ways in which the Bible today is under attack. Even well-known speakers, well-known preachers will get up and, and they'll say things like, you know, long before they had the Bible, they had the resurrection. And, and so we need to focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Or uh, they'll say other things like, well, you, you know, uh, really, the Word of God, the Word of God, that's Jesus. That, that's the real Word of God, and that's what we need to focus on and who we need to focus on. And both of these are attempts to downgrade Scripture, to, to play down the Bible. And by the way, do you know the error that's, that's uh, connected to both of those? It's present both. How do you know? Let's start with Jesus. How do you know anything about Jesus? I'm not talking about the historical Jesus. 
that scholars are trying to search after. I'm talking about how do you know anything about Jesus being God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, who came down, took on flesh, lived among us, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for us? It's right here. How do you even know that Jesus is the Word of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us? How do you know anything about the resurrection of Christ? That He died on the cross, was dead three days, and was raised from the dead and has ascended back to the Father's right hand? It's right here. It's right here. You know anything about Jesus and the resurrection only because it's been revealed in Scripture. And so to downgrade this is, is some kind of a... a attempt to be spiritual or to meet the world on neutral ground, so-called, when it's not neutral ground because we've given so much ground to the world. No, no. All uh, redemptive knowledge is contained right here in Scripture. This is the Bible test, and it's connected to, again, the contrast here, they are from the world, John says. These, again, these, these teachers, these false prophets, they speak from the world, he says there. Uh, they have their origin, they get their inspiration from the world, which is a, uh, John's way of talking about the, the fallen system and the fallen order that is present and that is under the control of the evil one. That's their origin, that's their source. It's from the world, he says. And guess what? Since it's from the world, the world's going to listen to them. The world hears the siren call of the world and is lulled to sleep by that. Because ultimately, again, it's, it's from the world. It's worldly. All those who are of the world, they speak from the world. They have their origin in the world. It's, again, rooted in the world system that's under the control of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, John says in 5, verse 19 of 1 John. And so their speech is going to reflect that. Notice, they speak from the world. And we know that this is true because Jesus himself told us it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so what people are saying about Scripture, that matters. That's important. It's a revelation of what's in the heart. And when the heart is enraptured with the values and the goals and the principles of the system that is hostile to God, the system that is opposed to God, well, then you know that's not from God. They find fellowship with the world. The world hears them. And that's, of course, because the world itself is fallen. It's comprised of humans, people who themselves are fallen, who are outside of Christ. And it find, they find a favorable hearing from the world. We are from God. The emphasis here in verses 4, 5, and 6, John puts the emphasis on verse 4, you. The emphasis in verse 5 is they, and then the emphasis here is we. And just like John says, you, the church, you're from God, he says we are from God. The we here seems to be the teachers of truth. And even uh, right down to the apostles. The Apostolic College, who were the foundation for all true teaching after that. John says, whoever knows, or the one knowing God, listens to us. What does it mean to know God? 
John's already talked about this earlier in 1 John 2 and verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. I've said before, I'll continue to say, if you want to know God, obey Him. Obedience is how we come to know God. And the person who listens to the apostles, that's a person who is listening to the voice of God. Those who listen to the apostolic testimony that's been recorded and preserved across history, that's a person who is listening to the voice of God. John says the person who listens to God, who obeys His Word, that's a person that naturally, or perhaps supernaturally, will listen to us. You see, the one who knows God listens to us. That's the force of this. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, does not listen to the apostolic word, does not listen to the apostolic testimony. Or they may hear it, not like it, and seek to twist it, distort it, turn it into something it's not supposed to be. That's, again, another reflection, not from God. By this we know the spirit of error and the spirit of truth. We can identify these. John says as much. We can know this. And if it's truth, it's going to line up with the revelation of God in Christ. It's going to line up with the revelation of God in His Word, in the Scriptures. If it does not line up with what God has revealed in His Word, in Christ, then it's to be abandoned. It's not from God. Why is this significant? It's because the apostles, John included, had the same view of Scripture as Jesus had of Scripture. And I contend it is the same view of Scripture that we need to have as well. What was Jesus' view of Scripture? Come with me briefly to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus here, he tells a parable. And then he invites his listeners, who are his opponents, to give the interpretation. And they give a true interpretation in verse 41. And so Jesus says, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures? And then he cites from Psalm 118. But I want you to notice this. Jesus assumes that his audience knows what the Scriptures are. And they did. We're told in Romans chapter 3 that the Jewish people, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. We know that historically what they did was they stored up the sacred texts, the sacred writings in the temple. You could go to synagogue usually on Tuesdays and the Sabbath. And you could hear the Word of God, the Scriptures read. They knew Genesis, the second Chronicles, was God's Word. That's how they counted it, by the way. That's how they ordered the Jewish people, how they ordered their text. It's the same books as we've got, we just put in a different order, Genesis to Malachi. They knew that the 22 books of the Old Testament were given by God. Again, they counted books differently than we do. We count 39. It's the same text, though. It's the exact same. And so when Jesus says, have you not read in the Scriptures, he assumes they know what the Scriptures are, and he holds them accountable to them. How could Jesus do that if they're going, 
well, you know, I, is, is Second Chronicles supposed to be in there? Well, I don't know about Isaiah. You know, and is it even really one book? I mean, you know, chapters 40 and following kind of sound like Deutero-Isaiah, right? Well, there was no question that God had delivered His Word to them. They had them, and they, were, they preserved them, laid them up in the temple. They had specific phrases for talking about them and how, uh, how they communicated uh, uncleanness to the one who touched them because they were so holy. If you turn the page to chapter 22 in Matthew's Gospel, once again, Jesus is in dialogue with his religious opponents, the Sadducees in this case, who don't believe in the resurrection. They have this story that they tell about a woman who's been married seven times to seven brothers. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Notice Jesus' answer in verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. (laughs) That's not very politically correct, right? Not a good way to win friends and influence people, yes? You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And then notice verse 31, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he quotes from Exodus 3 and verse 6. There's a number of things that are interesting here. Number one, we would expect to read here, have you not read what was written? But notice, have you not read what was said, what was spoken to you? Wait a minute, God's talking to Moses. Yeah, but it's to you. That's the nature of the Scriptures. That's the nature of this Word. It is a living and active Word from God. This is Jesus' view of Scripture, by the way. Anything less than that falls short. And it's not a true, accurate view of Scripture. Again, it was said to you by God. And He's citing from the Scriptures. Time and again, you'll read about the Scriptures. Jesus will appeal to the Scriptures. The apostles will appeal to the Scriptures. They'll talk about the Scriptures, the sacred writings, the writings, the Scriptures, Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, the law, the prophets and the writings, the law, the oracles of God, the prophetic word. All of these are synonyms to talk about right here. Scripture. Which are the words of God. We must have the same view of the Scriptures as Jesus and the Apostles. It is a living and an active word. It is a complete revelation from God. And we notice here, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Because there's what's in back of, of this text is Jesus in John chapters 14, 15, 16, where He promises He says, I will send the Spirit, and He will guide you into all truth. And that's true for the immediate audience in the context, which are the apostles, but it's also true for the church even today. Don't we have the apostolic word contained right here in the pages of our Bible? There's this unbroken chain of communication where the Father sends the Son to communicate. And indeed, that is the revelation, the demonstration of the Word of God, the speaking of God. And many times and in many ways, God has spoken to us by the prophets. 
But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says. But then the Son says, I'm going to go back to the Father, and when I do, the Father and I are going to send the Spirit. And He will communicate. You know, there are some things, Jesus says in that context, He says, there are some things you're not ready for. But the Spirit will come and He will guide you into all truth. He will, he will serve to reveal all that is necessary for life and godliness. And guess what happened? The Son went back to the Father. The Father and Son sent the Spirit into the apostles and into the church. And the apostles put pen to parchment and they have written what we have today. They were moved by the Spirit. And now we have the Scriptures which are God-breathed. Like, and I've talked about this before. If you put your hand in front of your lips when you're talking and you feel the breath there, that's what this is. It's given by God. And we have it. Those who are not from God, not going to listen to this. Or if they hear it, they're not going to like it, and they're going to twist it, and they're going to distort it, and they're going to say things like, well, you know, the Scripture never calls itself the Bible. It's some of the other stuff that you'll run into these days. The Bible never promises that there's going to be a Bible. That's so much theological, high-minded rhetoric. No, God, through the Son, promised that there is going to be a full revelation. And we've got it contained in the pages of our Bible. We who are from God, we recognize Scripture for what it is. It is the Word of God. All Scripture, every portion of Scripture even. Even, it's fascinating, you go back to Matthew 21, and you notice the argument Jesus makes. He argues from a verb tense. I am, right? Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will vanish from the Word of God. How do you react to the Scripture? See, that's the, that's the test here. It's the apostolic testimony that's at the heart of this Bible test. How do you react to Scripture when it is read? How do people react to Scripture when it is read? How, how were these false prophets reacting to, say, John's gospel that he had written? Were they seeking to submit themselves to it and be obedient to all things therein? Or were they hearing it and going, hmm, well, I don't, that doesn't agree with my philosophical system that I have here. In fact, I need to bring my philosophical system and read through that lens this book. If, if a person is from God, they will humbly submit themselves to the Word of God. They will recognize it for what it is. But if not, they'll, they'll chafe under it. They'll refuse to submit themselves to it. They'll balk at divine revelation. And that is an ind indication that they are actually beholden to a spirit of error. Historically, we, we know what happens. Again, Gnosticism is going to blossom in the second century. But the church recognized that they had everything they needed to answer the spirit of error, to identify it, and to proclaim and promote truth. And what ends up happening is, historically, Gnosticism, that philosophical system eventually goes by the wayside. What's left? What's still standing today? 
What was victorious in the grand pages of history? It was Christianity. Uh, Christians who continually came back to the Scriptures, who continued to uh, test the spirits by, does it agree with Scripture? Uh, how's the person's ethic? How's their life? Does it match up with Scripture? What are they saying about Jesus? Does it match up with what God has revealed about the Son historically? These are the three big tests that John presents here. And we see that all along throughout history, God's Word has prevailed. Christ has triumphed over His enemies, ruling in the midst of His enemies. They have been made His footstool all along the way in keeping with prophetic literature, Psalm 110. And Christ must reign, and indeed He does. Indeed, it is His victory which is our victory. <clears throat> I hope I don't burst anybody's bubble. But um, professional wrestling is staged. I'm, I'm sorry, I know. I know. Spo it's a big spoiler, I know. WWE and what you see on TV. Before the wrestlers ever go out and step into the squared circle, it has been determined beforehand who's going to win. Who's going to win the belt? Who's going to win the match? The contenders go into the match. They go through the match for entertainment purposes. Why WWF became WWE, well, partly because of a lawsuit from the World Wildlife Federation, but also uh, because of it's, it's entertainment. WWE, the E stands for entertainment. It's for entertainment purposes. And, and the point of the battle is not to decide who wins, the point of the battle is to give the crowd a show. The winner of the match does not battle for victory. They battle from victory. He battles already knowing he's won. Those who confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Those who have the Spirit of God within them. Those who listen to the Apostle's word that has been given by God, we have already won. In Christ Jesus, we have the victory. Now, God, He, he allows us to go through this life, and everything that comes against us and everything that we experience, He permits those things to come. And we go through our Christian life and we go through our Christian walk not to win the victory, but to show off for the world the riches of God's grace and mercy and to put on display the full attributes of God. It's a show off that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The victory is ours. Let us walk with faithfulness, knowing. Let us, let us battle this spiritual warfare from victory. Let us pray. Lord God, we, we give you honor and glory and praise because of the victory that you have secured in Christ Jesus. That we can live, move, and have our being.
that we can wage warfare gloriously because you have attained the victory. And we battle from victory knowing that. We pray, Father, that we would exercise spiritual discernment in this world. That we would recognize Jesus for who He really is. And that we would desire to know Him as He really is. That we would recognize that You have given us Your Spirit and He lives within us. And that we would always come back to the Scriptures in all things. And we know that through Your Word, we come to know You, who You really are. And that's what we want, Father. We need Your help. And we pray that You, O Helper, would help us by Your Spirit within us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.